I love a scandal. To watch the world burn and lose their minds after finding out the fine print eliminated another's entitlement. Or an ironic twist where a saint becomes a Satan. I especially love it when this involves those within the third sector. For years the greedy and evil have hidden behind the good name charity for too long. I myself a witness to these wrongdoings, decided to create a podcast to uproot their stories buried just a little too soon in the archive. Uncharitable is a narrative, storytelling podcast about true crimes and questionable practices related to that third sector. So join me, host Odea, as I attempt to smoke out the walls that dress in a sheep's clothing. Seek us wherever you find your podcasts. Or consider contributing to the community on Instagram, Reddit or X. You're listening to True Crime Feed. To true crime feed i'm your host angela ferrari reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor plus my top three true crime picks of the week first on the docket i've got something real juicy for you today this is a story that absolutely should be a movie or even better a long-form tv series with enough crazy side stories it could spawn spin-offs of their own a whole universe of crime that all lead back to one person a man named paul larue he's what you get when you cross a genius computer programmer with a warlord It is absolutely horrifying what this man was able to accomplish controlling a network of illegal industries all around the world from his laptop. Oof, y'all aren't even ready for this. I first heard about Paul LaRue on the podcast Reply All, episode number 136, titled The Founder, where co-host PJ Vo interviews journalist Evan Ratcliffe. Evan spent years researching Paul LaRue and writing his book Mastermind. It's a great episode with fun banter and you get that trademark signature PJ giggle. But there's so much more to the story and they barely scratch the surface. So I highly recommend the audiobook Mastermind if you want even more crazy details. But for now, I'm going to try and shove as many as I can into two parts covering the life and crimes of Paul LaRue. As per usual, to take your experience to the next level, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. Key players this week are Paula Rue, author Evan Radcliffe, and I have lots of geographic visuals that will help you get a lay of the land because your boy Paul makes a lot of moves, as you will soon learn. Oh man, getting to talk about this story feels like Christmas morning. Except instead of opening up a new Barbie, I'm opening up a box containing a dystopian internet-based drug lord action figure! And like any action hero or villain, we need the origin story. Because it is astonishing where he ends up after you learn where Paul LaRue began. No one from his early years would have ever predicted his life would lead him down a path of such devastation and destruction. So much about Paul LaRue is confusing. 
and it started immediately at his birth in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. He is a white minority, and his biological parents are unknown at the time. But there were rumors that his birth mother was the teenage granddaughter of a U.S. senator, or that his father was a Zimbabwe military general. Paul LaRue won't get any answers until much, much later. Infant Paul was born on Christmas Eve in 1972 at the Lady Rodwell Maternity Home. But unlike Will Ferrell's character in the movie Elf, he did not sneak into Santa's bag and stow away to the North Pole to be adopted by Papa Elf and then later save Christmas. Ugh, I really wish he had, though. Things would have turned out a lot better. Instead, he is adopted by a loving couple who had waited for years on adoption lists to have a child of their own. He is given the name Paul LaRue and happily spends his early years in the asbestos mining town of Mashava. But don't worry, y'all, it's the good kind of asbestos. Apparently, this is one of the few areas in the world where amphibole asbestos is mined, whose fibers are shorter and straighter and deemed to be safer for humans, but that's the subject of another kind of podcast. Maybe a spin-off show? Something like True Factoid Feed? We'll put that in the uh, maybe pile. And getting back to Paul, he has a happy childhood in the town of Mashava, and in his younger years, Paul is described as a nice, sweet, shy kid. But he and his family were living in a politically volatile region that was known at the time as the Republic of Rhodesia. The ruling white minority was being taken over by the black majority. And right after the Rhodesian Bush Wars, the Zimbabwean revolutionary leader Robert Mugabe becomes president. And this whole saga is fascinating and could be its own podcast spinoff too, like True War Stories and Revolutions Feed. It's a working title. Anyhoozle, after Mugabe comes to power, the LaRue family moves to South Africa, where teenage Paul starts going through changes. By this time, his folks have leveled up. Instead of making money in asbestos, now they're making money in coal mining management. And they buy teenage Paul his first computer. Paul was hooked. It's all he did. Even though he was tall, handsome, and had the build of a rugby player, Paul didn't really have a social life. He wasn't interested in much else besides his computer. And he became fairly reclusive and even gave off an attitude of superiority. He was definitely not vibing with the kids at his new school. Paul was very intelligent, but put little effort into his schoolwork and threw an absolute conniption fit about having to learn the Afrikaans language which was mandatory at his new school, and he eventually drops out. It was also at this time he started dabbling in his first illegal enterprise. At age 16, Paul was arrested for selling pornography. His cousin, Matt Smith, later tells author Evan Radcliffe that Paul didn't care what he was selling as long as he was making money. And even though Paul LaRue did not finish his traditional schooling, he enrolled in a programming course and completed the one-year course in just eight weeks. Things started to look up. His interests in computers and coding set him on a promising career path, and he left South Africa for the UK at age 18 and became a programmer. He later gets married and moves to Australia and becomes an Australian citizen, a.k.a. the Texas version of a British person. In the late 90s, he develops E4M, 
which stands for Encryption for the Masses. And I am going to issue a major nerd alert before I explain this next part. So what Paul created was a powerful encryption software that you can use to encrypt and protect your entire hard drive without anyone being able to detect that you're using encryption. It's perfect for sketchy and illegal activities, and it's also super cutting edge at the time, layered with very sophisticated algorithms and uh, just some really tight code, y'all. And he releases this all open source for anyone to use and build off of along with some manifestos about the importance of privacy from prying government eyes. He also made declarations about the power of open source collaborations that perhaps he later regrets making. Ugh, I love and hate this debate about what fuels innovation more, open source versus proprietary technology. I am a wicked flip-flopper on this one, but I think I know where Paul LaRue lies now. He got totally sandbagged after releasing his code to the internet. People took his code, made some subtle changes, slapped an IP sticker on it, and made those dot-com yacht loads of money off of Paul LaRue's hard work. In the meantime, he struggles to find a steady job as a programmer. He even worked for a guy named Wilfried Hafner. Yes, that's a real name. Old Wilfried ran a company called SecureStar and also owned a baller estate in the French Riviera. Paul was working on software at SecureStar that was based off his E4M encryption program. It was maddening for him. Then Paul gets fired after it was discovered he was secretly incorporating some of the SecureStar proprietary programming code into his own personal side project. But Paul LaRue denies ever doing this. However, a direct competitor to SecureStar's program emerges called TrueCrypt. TrueCrypt's developers remained anonymous, but many believe Paul was behind this revenge plot. Nevertheless, he was still broke, he gets divorced, and starts expressing his opinions about being screwed over on message boards, as well as other racist and misogynistic points of view. Weird, does that kind of thing happen on the internet? He made his feelings clear that Paul felt like he had been taken advantage of by naively buying into the shared culture of the early internet, and instead people much dumber than him plagiarized his brilliant ideas and exploited his generous gift. Paul wouldn't get fooled twice, though. He would be sure that no one would steal from him ever again without facing a harsh punishment. Who will get there? But man, future Paul getting revenge on those who wrong him make the Gambino crime family doings look like an episode of Family Ties. Sha -la -la -la. Paul LaRue struggles for a while to get on his feet. And to make matters even worse, around the age of 30, he was reapplying for citizenship in Zimbabwe. He gets access to his long-form birth certificate and discovers that he had been adopted. Paul was shocked. And what seemed to upset him most of all, according to a family friend, is that his birth mother never gave him a name. His certificate just said, unknown. That detail ate away at him. And Paul LaRue refused to leave this world without making himself known. Over the next few years, Paul builds a new business an online pharmaceutical company called RX Limited. 
He works with independent and oftentimes struggling mom-and-pop pharmacies to fulfill prescription drug orders placed online, and they receive a commission on each sale. So a typical customer discovers the service when they Google searched a particular drug. They're served an ad for an RX Limited website, of which there were many. The customer would fill out a survey detailing their symptoms and then be directed to a checkout page. Then their order is fulfilled by one of the independent pharmacies partnering with RX Limited. Many of the drugs being ordered were commonly abused pain meds. Shocker. The three most popular were Altram, which is a brand name for a synthetic opioid called Tramadol, Soma, the muscle relaxer, and Furacet, usually taken for migraines. Here's what's special about these drugs. Unlike OxyContin and fentanyl, the drugs being purchased on RX Limited at the time were not considered controlled substances and did not fall under the classification of a scheduled drug. So technically legal, but super sketchy. Many people addicted to opioids would just order tons of tramadol online. And Paul and his sales team had a whole strategy to recruit cautious medical professionals. According to a pharmacist named Charles Schultz, who ran two family pharmacies out of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, he actually gets a flyer in the mail requesting a partnership with RX Limited. Charles is very dubious at first, even though he is on the brink of losing his business. Charles was in his 70s at the time. He had an adult son with a debilitating psychiatric problem, and he himself had suffered from multiple heart attacks due to the stress of his situation. So Charles gives RX Limited a call for more information, and they assure him that everything is above board and even give him the number of a, quote, former DEA agent in Florida to answer any of his other questions. Side note, though, the guy on the other end of the line was a total poser, unless DEA stands for Deceitful Enterprising Actor. But pharmacist Charles Schultz buys in, and soon half of his sales are coming from online RX Limited orders. And soon, business is booming all across America, helping to fuel and perpetuate the growing opioid epidemic. And it soon becomes apparent that this online drug ordering system is being recklessly abused. Kind of like my hair after that incident with a crimping iron. And the scope of RX Limited's operation is overwhelming. Paul LaRue even opens call centers in the Philippines and Israel just to keep up with the demand. And like I mentioned earlier, he had tons of websites. RX Limited would spam, email people, and buy sponsored ads for their online pharmacies. And if a website got reported, Paul had a creative solution. And again, I'm going to have to issue another nerd alert warning to explain. So every website has to purchase a unique registered domain name from a domain seller like GoDaddy, for example. But Paul made his own domain seller and created unlimited new domains for his business. So if one went down, a new website would pop right up. And by 2012, it is estimated that more than half of all online pharmacies in the world were registered through Paul's domain seller called ABS Systems. And no one else was buying domains through ABS Systems. It was just Paul servicing himself. He made hundreds of millions of dollars off of this gray area venture, profiting off the opioid crisis. 
But I really don't want to give Paula Rue too much in the props department because, dude, the pharmaceutical companies helped shape the lax U.S. rules and regulations in place that allowed Paula Rue to operate. Everyone was turning a blind eye and they were all making mega yacht loads of money through this arrangement. At this point, Paul has more money than he could spend in a lifetime. But instead of retiring at a young age, relaxing and enjoying time with family, Paul takes his hundreds of millions and invests into even more depraved business opportunities. But at the same time, he is building his empire. Two pencil-pushing agents in Minneapolis working in the Tactical Diversion Squad, which is an obscure arm of the DEA, they are taking notice of RX Limited. After years of tedious investigation, they are able to tie all of these seemingly independent online pharmacies, shipping painkillers all around Canada and the US, to a single company owned by one man. It's pretty wild how they figure this all out. So they notice one random pharmacy in Chicago is shipping out way too many painkillers. And then they subpoena the FedEx account and notice dozens of other independent pharmacies are sharing that same FedEx account. PJ Vo on Reply All equates it to 80 people sharing the same Netflix account and password. Like, Paul, how do you go and create so many sophisticated systems, navigate all these prescription loopholes, and then royally biff it so hard on a major logistical aspect of your sketchy business? Wicked sloppy Joe guy. So the Minneapolis agents are able to connect the pharmacies sharing the FedEx accounts to the umbrella company of RX Limited, and then they track down the IP address to Paul LaRue. They start tracking his phone records and notice a lot of calls being made to Somalia. This guy certainly isn't opening pharmacies there. So what the frack is Paul LaRue up to in Somalia? Next time on True Crime Feed Worldwide Web of Evil Part 2, Paul LaRue starts selling weapons to Iran, smuggles gold out of the Congo, starts trafficking crystal meth, and you won't believe who his meth source is. Paul's like an investor on Shark Tank, but all of the pitches are for super illegal, super dangerous, or flat out absurd money-making schemes. We also find out exactly what the frack Paul LaRue is up to in Somalia. And we hear from a former Israeli call center employee who is lured to the Philippines, pushed off the side of a boat, shot at, and lives to tell the tale. Things are about to pop off. You are not going to want to miss part two of our coverage on Paul LaRue. So join me back here next week. And in the meantime, I want to hear your most diabolical pitches for Evil Shark Tank and your thoughts about what you've heard so far. You can email me directly at Angela at thetruecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and don't be a Paul LaRue-esque style internet troll or I will subject you to my newest podcast spinoff, True Obscure Showtunes Feed, where I sing songs from Broadway plays that closed after only one week or less. Like the not-so-hit show, Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up? Yes, that was the title of an actual play that ran for a whopping three nights before closing.
Ah, quick edit here. This is Angela from the future, and I did some research on the play. Do black patent leather shoes really reflect up? And it actually sounds like a delightful, fun Catholic school coming of age story. And even though it failed on Broadway, it's beloved by many a community theaters, and there are even talks of it being made into a movie directed by Ken Quapis. But still, trust me, you do not want to hear my rendition of the song, We Are Saving Ourselves for Marriage, from the Broadway flop but still beloved play, Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up? But you absolutely do want to stay tuned until after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, <sighs> hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Before we start, yes, I am still tuning into the retrievals. I think after the shock of episode one wears off, the rest of the show feels more like reaction and fact gathering. Um, There continue to be very compelling segments and new details emerging as to how the nurse was able to get away with her actions for so long. I'm going to keep listening, but overall feeling a little lukewarm about this one. Uh, But now let's get to the official ranking. Here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Lisk. Here's a synopsis. The Lisk Long Island serial killer investigation began in May 2010 with the disappearance of sex worker Shannon Gilbert. In the following month, Suffolk County police uncovered human remains from nine more murders, including those of the Gigolo Four, all sex workers whose bodies were disposed of similarly. The podcast Lisk is inspired by the New York Times bestselling book, Lost Girls, an Unsolved American Mystery. Follow the series as it is told through previously unheard interviews with family members, friends, police officers, government officials, and others whose lives were touched by the gruesome murders. As I've mentioned before, I'm not usually into serial killer content, But this is big news in the true crime world, so I wanted to get caught up. And I started with season three, where right away the list killer is finally being caught. And then we get a two-parter explainer about the case against this particular suspect. It's kind of fun to go backwards, reverse engineering a case. And this show is the best explainer for a newbie like me. It's very well done. And I hope to see something similar happen with the Freeway Phantom case. So I applaud all of the hard work that went into the reporting on Lisk. At the number two spot, we have Believable Coco Berthaman Story. Here's a summary from the show page. Coco Berthaman became internet famous by sharing her story of surviving sex trafficking as a young girl growing up in Germany. She was sheltered and supported by families in Utah, where her faith and fame intertwined. But in 2022, Coco was arrested for raising money for a fake cancer diagnosis, and people began to doubt everything she had ever said. 
Is her life story truly one big elaborate lie? This is a fascinating listen so far. I think one of the elements that works really well, while at the same time also being super creepy, is the use of AI to recreate Coco's words. You hear her real voice actually speaking from previous video recordings, and then you hear the AI version of her voice reading from social media posts and transcripts. The match to her voice is uncanny. The use of AI, I think, works so much better than having an actor reading her words. It's a really innovative storytelling device that adds to the wild ride when you tune in to Believable, the Coco Berthaman story. And at the number one spot, we once again have The Girlfriends. Here's a reminder of the show. It's 1995, and Carol Fisher is a high-flying divorcee looking for love in Las Vegas. It's slim pickings in the medical community she works in, but then Bob comes to town. Bob Bierenbaum is a plastic surgeon who flies planes and speaks several languages. Her mom loves that he's Jewish, but there's something off about him. He's perfect on paper, but quick to anger and never talks about his ex-wife, who, it turns out, is missing and presumed dead. Okay, okay, okay. Amy Poehler as Regina George's mom in Mean Girls is totally me pressing play when a new episode of The Girlfriends drops. Hey, 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 how are my best girlfriends? So what's up? What's the 411? What's everyone been up to? What's the hot gossip? Tell me everything. This case is really heating up. We follow Bob to North Dakota, where he continues to bring the drama, and Gail's sister Elaine, with her beautiful, deep, brandy voice, teams up with some cold case detectives to finally solve her sister's murder. Ah, this show is such a satisfying listen. I love spending time with the girlfriends. Now for my miss of the week. We have Suspect Season 3, Five Shots in the Dark. Here's a rundown from the show. Suspect Season 3, Five Shots in the Dark follows Leon Benson, who spent 24 years in an Indiana state prison for the 1998 murder of a young man named Casey Schoen. His conviction hinged on the testimony of two eyewitnesses. But what if their memories turned out to be wrong? And what if the people who knew what really happened had never been allowed to speak? This is the story of two victims, one murdered and one sentenced to life. Ugh, I feel so bad saying anything bad about Suspect because I loved season one. I was so excited for season three to come out. I love the case that they are covering and the work that they're doing, and I even loved episode one. But after three episodes, I have to quit. The chemistry, balance, the format of the season is just off. Ugh, I was rooting for you guys. This is very disappointing. And I'm so sorry, Suspect Season 3, Five Shots in the Dark, but you're going down my podcast queue trapdoor. But I am going to leave the door cracked open just a little bit for season four. Find out next week if the girlfriends will continue to dominate the number one spot or if they will be a surprising upset. And let me know what trending shows are in your top three. 
What show fell through your podcast queue trap door? I will meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation, especially Instagram where I am making some dank original memes for every episode. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to True Crime Feed. It really is a huge help to grow the show. So thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding. I love a scandal. To watch the world burn and lose their minds after finding out the fine print eliminated another's entitlement. Or an ironic twist where a saint becomes a Satan. I especially love it when this involves those within the third sector. For years the greedy and evil have hidden behind the good name charity for too long. I myself a witness to these wrongdoings, decided to create a podcast to uproot their stories buried just a little too soon in the archive. Uncharitable is a narrative storytelling podcast about true crimes and questionable practices related to that third sector. So join me, host Odea, as I attempt to smoke out the walls that dress in a sheep's clothing. Seek us wherever you find your podcasts, or consider contributing to the community on Instagram, Reddit, or X.